Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bible with me this morning and open to the book of Ezra. Ezra. We are in a series entitled Pursuing God, and today we're going to look at the word that awakens to greater glory, the word that awakens to greater glory. When was the last time you remembered hearing a startling word that kind of awakened you to some reality? When I was thinking about this, I went back really to the first word that I can remember hearing as a child that was kind of startling to the nation, if you will. I I was told about by grandparents and parents the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963 and how that really shaped a generation. Many of these words that have been proclaimed or that startle our reality identify a generation. I remember in my own life as a young man, Ronald Reagan being shot when he was president and what that did through the shock, sending the shock waves through the news media. I remember as a 16-year-old high schooler sitting in our science, uh, not lab, but the, the big room where we went for the large group. And as the space shuttle Challenger took off and this historic flight with the first non-astronaut, a teacher, who was on that flight, it took off and we were applauding and all of a sudden, like when the rockets were supposed to let go and release, something happened and we all kind of looked at each other and went, wow, that didn't feel right. And only a few moments later after silence to learn, in fact, great devastation had occurred and the whole nation was watching. I remember the speech when Ronald Reagan faced the greatest communist threat in the world, and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And those words rang through against one of the greatest common evils that existed in that day. And of course, many of us remember the days of September the 11th of 2001. We remember where we were. We remember what we were doing. I remember the little TV that I saw the first tower get hit on. And then a few minutes later, in the corner of the TV came a second plane. And the way the world seemed to have changed in an instant that day. When was the last time you remember hearing words that seemed to alter reality by the reality that they presented but two years ago we all learned a new word together did we not pandemic and it seems to have altered reality in some ways big words have a way of awakening us to the reality that they present to us and today in our pursuing God series I want us to see two words that awaken us that awaken us to ultimate reality, the reality of God and who He is and what He's promised and what He wants to do for His people. Let's go to Ezra chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 1 
as we begin this morning. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Now I told you when this series started, Ezra is a historical record. The first six chapters of this book cover roughly an 80-year period of time. The last four chapters of the book all occur in one year. So things are going to accelerate quickly when we get to the second half of Ezra. But for now, we're seeing things condensed, things that transpired over a longer period of time that we're looking at within a window of time. And within this historical record, there are other authors that God used that are recorded in the Bible that are active and speaking to God's people during this time. Two of those are the minor prophets known as Haggai and Zechariah. Now, if you're wondering why we call them minor, it's not because their message is less important than the others. It's just simply a designation that was given because of the length of their messages. That's all it is. It's not less important. Please don't ever believe that. And when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, roughly 16 years have passed since the end of chapter 4. 16 years after the end of Ezra 4, we see the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah take center stage. What's transpired in this time? Well, we saw at the end of chapter 4, one of the darkest days in history, a depressing day, a day where hope seemed to be lost and light seemed to completely dissipate when the people of God walked away from the work of God and no longer served the mission of God with their lives. They stopped working and they'd gone about their lives. They had forsaken God, they had forsaken his work, and they had become consumed with their own lives. Can you imagine how much momentum for the mission of God was lost over this period of time? I tell you, I can't even fathom. I can't fathom. When I look at the cumulative effect of the last two years, specifically 16 months, of how it is that the church at large has fractured, I can't fathom the effect of 16 years. But here's what we see today, friends. God is faithful. When his people have forsaken him, he is still faithful. And he comes even in these times, as he does at all times, to prove his faithfulness. How does he come? But through two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to awaken his people to his work by his word. This is what I want you to walk away with today. God speaks his word to awaken our hearts for his greater glory in life. God speaks his word to awaken our hearts for his greater glory in life. And I believe that the word of God that comes to us today is given to us for a time in which we find ourselves to awaken us out of the slumber, out of whatever it is that we found ourselves in because of the situation in which we were living, to see that the hand of God is still at work in the world and he wants to call his people to join him in that, world, in that work. And so today we see two words that awaken God's people for his greater glory. Let's look first of all at awakening word number one. Let's go to the prophet Haggai. If you have your Bibles, turn to the next to the next to last book of the Old Testament. 
three books from the end, a very short book, Haggai chapter one. I'm gonna read verses one through 11 before we continue. This is the message of God's prophet Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then skip down to verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you declares the Lord. And then I want to look in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Now, before we look at this awakening word, let me help you understand what God is saying by the way he introduces himself to people. When God has a word for his people, he gives them a name for the lesson or for himself that will remind them of the lesson that he is going to teach them. He wants us to understand his nature and his character. And today, the name that he gives in this message is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a name for God in the Old Testament that means he is our 
a, a victor. He is the one who fights for us. He is the one who fights our battles and brings victory for his people. So when God says to Haggai, tell them the Lord of hosts said, there is a promise of God of his battle that he will fight for his people and his victory that he will bring for them that is inherent within the name that he gives to them. So friends, when you look at this first context and ultimately word that awakens, here's what we see. The context is that the people were overrun with fears. That, that the opposition from the people around them had become so severe and, and they were being taunted and ridiculed and that they, they were being absolutely pressed out from every side by the people around them as they mocked them. In addition to that, the ruler of the of the world at that time had sent a letter that said stop the work so that I can investigate the accusations that have been made against you. So the government was against them, the culture was against them, everything was opposing God's people and what did they do? They became overrun with their fears. They were pounded by the opposition and they became frustrated in their work so they stopped. They stopped. They let the circumstances of life overwhelm them. And they let it drive them to forsake what God had said to them. But friends, God is gracious. When we forsake him, he shows himself faithful and true to us. And this is the first word of awakening that God sends to his people by the prophet Haggai when he says this, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Verse 3 and verse 7. Haggai comes to the people and he says, what are you doing? This is not what God commanded of you. What are you doing? Forsaking God is always futile. Forsaking God never satisfies. You see, here's what we know that Haggai tells us. People had all of life's necessities. They were not wanting for anything. They weren't struggling to make ends meet. They weren't struggling to find something to eat or water to drink. There was even a measure of abundance that was prevalent among them. But the abundance just didn't satisfy them. You know, it can be found true in our day and time today that the most miserable people in the world are the most self-consumed. And those who are most self-consumed are always most self-deceived. As well. When we make life about us, nothing satisfies. All the things that God intended to be of satisfaction for us fail to do so. We find no joy, we find no accomplishment or sense of satisfaction in our work. Our food and our drink can never satisfy us. We shovel it in and we take it in and it provides some measure of nutrients for the essentials of life, but there's no satisfaction in it. Money, doesn't matter how much you have, and even the things that it can buy will not satisfy you when you are forsaking God. You see, nothing can satisfy the hunger of the soul other than God. That's what God is telling us. And that's why he says, consider your ways. Now, the Hebrew there is literally two words that says, give careful investigation to the center of your being. Check your heart is what he's telling us. 
check your heart. We live harder and we live faster, filling life with everything that we love. But everything that we love leaves us empty and not full. Leaves us exhausted and not energized. And it may thrill for a moment, but it does not last ultimately. God says the way to correct your life is not to consume more, but it's to check your heart. Investigate the depths of your being and see if they are aligned with the truth of God's being. And so the question becomes, how is it that we forsake God? How do we forsake God in this life when life begins to overwhelm? And our first consideration shifts from him to the things of life that we feel we most need or want. And we begin this slow drift away from God. Life gets more expensive. Money may feel harder to come by. And we stop giving God the first to represent that all good and perfect gifts come from the Father of light. Who are good things from him. Life gets heavy and we try to relieve stress and we've got to make some margin in our life. And so very often the first things that we cut are the very sources of God's encouragement for us and we stop serving him. So we sense this lack or this stagnation of growth in our spiritual life because of it. Life gets busy and we don't have time to connect with others for what seems like just meaningless little social activity. But then all of a sudden we begin to realize that the strength of heart that comes through the regular encouragement of God's people is no longer there. Why? Because the connections that we made in order to bring the encouragement and the fellowship of Christian community has been cut off. Life overwhelms us. We stop worshiping Jesus because, well, we can't get back in time. Or, well, we lost an hour on the first half of the day. Thank you. Some of you are smiling. Some of you got that. You gained one on the end of the day, but you lost it on the first. Okay. There are two things in this world that demonstrate the emotional instability of society. Time change and the stock market. Okay, think about it for a moment. That's the best two ways for you to measure where your heart's really anchored to. Your bank account and your calendar. Where you're giving and expending your life. You see, we forsake God when we cease to live as a steward. Honoring him with our time, with our talent, with our treasure of life. And what we do is we consume for life. That's the way we were created. We were created as worshipers and and one of the aspects of, of our natural physical life is consuming and one of the ways we worship is to consume things. But the problem is though we consume for life when we become consumed by the very things, even the things that we need, let alone the things that we want, we begin to reveal how it is that we mold idols out of the good things from God and try to turn them in as a substitute for God. The very things that press upon us to forsake God are the things that we give ourselves to with increasing priority as if somehow it will help if we let them consume more. 
Yeah, that didn't work. Maybe if I do it again, it'll work better. <laughs> oh, maybe if I do it faster and more, and you, you get the repetition there. The pattern breeds spiritual confusion for us. And spiritual confusion doesn't remove our understanding of spiritual priorities. It just begins to dilute them and their importance in our life because we've added everything else as of equal to it. It's still there. And you can even see it. You know it. But, but it doesn't hold the prominence, the place of priority in our life that is worthy that God is worthy of. And, and because we've made God equal with everything else, or rather we've tried to bring everything else up to equality with God, this dilution happens in our heart and confusion sets in. And listen, spiritual confusion always produces a self-centered preoccupation. Oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this? We try to fix it really in two general ways. Number one, by religion. We try to recapture something that we've lost by performing rituals. We go do something for God and then we hold it up to God and go, did you see that? We fabricate a past moment we remember. We run back to that moment and go, I, I remember this is a really important time in my life with God. I'll just repeat that and see if that will work. The problem is we hold a shell of religion, but it is absent of the true power within because we haven't communed with God We've just done something to appease him. The other option is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is where we begin to repeat what I call these self-salving mantras in God's name. And, and, and we do it even as Christians. Now, those who are not Christians, it's, it's, it always is done in God's name. It's just a different God. But we try to appease God in self-righteousness. We say things like, God wants me to be happy. God wouldn't want me to be this miserable. God wants me to rest. He wants me to be blessed. The problem is we don't look to what God wants and his power to provide it. We go and try to get it in our own understanding, our own power and our own ability. The problem with both of these is they lead us to further angst with God and ultimately to a disillusionment with him. You see, friends, if you want to know God's will, if you want to know what God wants, all you must do is ask him. And yet the source is usually the first thing that begins to collect dust and that gets set aside in life. Empty religion and self-centered preoccupation only, but always lead one to forsake God in their life. You see, forsaking God as the first priority of your life frustrates the heart. Because no matter how much of whatever you try, our heart ends up empty and exhausted forsaking God never satisfies and here's what God comes to us and says look at your heart look at what's filled you look at what you have shoved in in increasing and compounding measure that's why there is no satisfaction and it causes us to ask, is there any place in life where I have or where I am forsaking God in my own life? Usually we can measure that temperature by the thermometer of frustration, by the thermometer of passivity, apathy towards God, neglect. These are the things that show us where we are forsaking God. 
And it causes us also to ask, when's the last time I had a heart checkup? When's the last time I went in and sat and had the Spirit of God ask some probing questions of my own heart to bring an assessment, likely a diagnosis? Let God's Word awaken you today, friends, to consider your ways, to check your heart. And in the face of rising fears and beckoning opposition and confused priorities, after long stints of exhaustion and exasperation, God wants to awaken you to what? To His greater glory for your life. He says this, I am with you. My spirit remains with you. The latter glory shall be greater than the former. Friends, God wants to fill your life with an abundant satisfaction in all things. Christian, God awakens you to invite you to His greater glory in your life. Will you be awakened by His word to check your heart? The second word of awakening that we see today is from the prophet Zechariah. I ask you to turn over one more page there to the next book of the Old Testament, the next to last book. And we see the colleague of Haggai, the prophet Zechariah. And we're going to see in this, in this passage a number of things, but I want to begin by reading just the first six verses of Zechariah to kind of get the introduction to his message. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of the fathers and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers of the Israelites who had now returned, who lived in absent rebellion of God. And because of that, God raised up the Babylonians to discipline them and overthrew them and sent them into exile. Zechariah is saying to this generation, did you not see, did you not hear, did you not learn what rebellion against God does to a people? It destroys them. And where are your gods? Where are the, or excuse me, where are your fathers? Where are the false prophets of those days? They're gone. But I am not. I am here. And I am speaking to you. You see, when God brings his word, he begins to call his people to return to him. He says to them, your fathers who were overthrown and carried into exile began the same way you are beginning by neglecting me. Will you not listen? 
And he reminds them of what he has done and doing. And he says this, and here is the second word of awakening for us today. Return to me and I will return to you. Return to the Lord. Check your heart and return to the Lord. He gives the fullness of the message and the promise of God's word through Zechariah by visions that he gives. And we're not going to look at all, but we are going to look at some strategic ones that overlay the message that Zechariah was proclaiming for God to his people. And I'm going to provide for us six reminders. And I want you to listen to these reminders. If you want to write them down, you can get the notes later. But listen to these reminders as we walk through these verses. Look with me in chapter 1 of verse 7 through 17. This first vision that comes to the prophet Zechariah from God is a vision that addresses the nations that have oppressed Judah and seem to be getting away with it. Does it not frustrate you, friends, when evil seems to win? When all that is wicked seems to overcome all that is righteous and good. And I tell you, the people of God in the Bible were frustrated with this over and over and over again. David writes the Psalms very often to tell God about the difficulty of when it seems like wickedness is winning. And this is what it appears here And the question gets posed to God from the people, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem, Lord? You see, the people were so frustrated with God, they thought it was God's fault. They thought it was God who was just failing to bless, who was just failing to dole out all of the good from his hand. And the Lord says to them, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, verse 17. And the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again he will choose Jerusalem. And in other words, he says to them, hang on, buckle your seatbelts, because you ain't seen nothing yet. And the second vision continues, verse 18 to 21, when he addresses the strength of the nations that have oppressed Judah and devastated their cause. You see, God did not want Judah to forget his great deliverance for them. And he says to the people, you look at me and you think it's my fault because you're worried about them. But I'm not even going to look at them because I'm not worried about them. I'm looking at you. Your status of being for today and the reality of it is because you've neglected me, not because they've become stronger than you. God confronts the opposition to remind his people, I have not forgotten you, you have forsaken me. And he calls his people to return because he sees them and he remembers the person who trusts in him. This is a promise that is inalterable in the eternal wisdom of God. The first reminder God gives to the people is that it is the Lord, he is the one who fights for you. I am the Lord of hosts. I'm not worried about the enemy. He is a defeated foe. I am calling you to awaken to what I am doing. 1 Peter 3.12 reminds us, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God says, don't you worry about the wickedness. They will have their day and they will be no more. Focus on me. The third vision 
introduces the second reminder to us and, and we see it's a man with a measuring line and he's, he's, he's got a ruler and, and foot by foot, he's measuring the walls of Jerusalem that have been crumbled. If you remember, they returned, they first built the altar, second of all, they built the foundation for the temple and then they began to construct the temple and that's where the work halted. But after the temple, it was their design. Actually, they didn't even wait till the temple was completed. They would begin to rebuild the wall as well. And God said, let's see. Let's see, you created this measure of protection for your life. Let's see how that's working out for you. And here in this vision that is given to Zechariah is a man measuring the wall. And lo and behold, do you know what they found? The city was greater than the wall. The means of security that they had set up was not sufficient for the means of growth that God had provided. The wall wasn't going to help them because it didn't even compass the whole city. And God reminds them, your security against every foe is not in your ability. There is no threat to life that is beyond God's knowledge, that is beyond his wisdom, nor his power, nor is there anything outside of God that will ever be sufficient for the security of his people. Friends, I ask us today, would it surprise you, church, to know that in some ways we as a church are stronger than we were two years ago? That the work of God didn't stop We're different. And there are things that, that we would look at just as these people looked at the temple that was in ruins and go, man, it was so great back when. But I tell you, that's a tactic of the evil one to distract us. Because God says to us today, just like he said to his people in this day, the former days will not compare to what is coming. But if we don't wake up, we will miss it. You see, when God refines his people, and he has surely been refining us, he refines us to prepare us to serve his mission because the days before us will not be like the days behind us. There is a greater glory that God ordains for his people. The second reminder he gives to his people even today, the Lord of hosts is our security. He grows us as he guards us. Vision number four, chapter three of Zechariah, we see that God is cleansing the garment of the high priest, Joshua. And he confronts Satan, who is standing ready to accuse Joshua, the leader of God's people, spiritually. Because if he can take Joshua out, he'll get most of the people with him. And the Lord rebukes the evil one. He snatches Joshua from the fire that he has prepared to burn him in. And he takes off his filthy clothes and he puts on impure vestments. And he restores him to the service of God right there in front of Satan. You see, God does not let Satan succeed, but he guards his people and he anoints his leader to serve his mission. And he cleanses his leader of sin. Joshua wasn't just a great guy to be used of God and that's why God used him. God chose him, but then he cleansed him with his righteousness, not Joshua's righteousness. He establishes him as a leader. He guards him from Satan's destruction and he sets him forth to walk in God's ways and to serve the mission of God's redeeming work. And do you know what God says here? I'll do it in a day. I'll do it in a single day. 
Praise be to God, that's what he did. You see, the Day of Atonement was the one day of the year, the highest and the holiest day of the year, when the people of Israel came together and they brought the supreme first best of their flock and they offered it as a sacrifice to God. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that even the people of the Old Testament who were uh, participating in the sacrificial system, they knew that the blood of goats did not forgive them nor cleanse them of their sin. But what they understood was it reminded them of the promise that, of God that he would forgive them, that he would cleanse them of sin by the blood. And the day of atonement in the Old Testament points us to the day of Jesus' crucifixion in the New. And it reminds us, number three, that God is the one who redeems his people by cleansing sin in the day of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. John 1, 29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you look at chapter 4 of Ezra, verses 23 and 24, we said this last week, some of the darkest days in human history. But I can tell you the darkest day in human history was when Jesus all alone continued to walk to the cross out of obedience to the Father to be offered up as a propitiation for our sins so that we could be forgiven because our sin debt was paid and we could be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And there he, when he was mocked, when he was beaten, he was crucified and continued to be mocked upon the cross. And when he had given up his last and finished his work by his own words, he died. And they took him off the cross and they put him in the grave. And I'm going to tell you, that's the most glorious day that we could ever imagine. But it didn't feel like it on that day. It felt like the absolute darkest day of all darkest days. But on the third day, a light pierced the darkness that would never be dimmed again. And it was the hope of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ultimate victory. Jesus visited Satan again at that time. And he said, you don't win ever and he came back and he declared the good news that in Jesus Christ is the light of life. God is the one who redeems his people by Jesus Christ. Vision 5, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 and 10 through 14, it tells us that there's a vision of a golden lampstand. And, and in this, the Lord sees the whole earth and it says that nothing is hidden from his sight. And he says that he sends the light of his truth forth and his anointed stand with it. He identifies Zerubbabel who is the governor, the leader at this time. And he identifies his power to lead. And he says that the work will be accomplished on his watch. He will rebuild the temple. And in that temple, it will be capstoned with God's blessing and God's grace. God will complete his work by his spirit. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is how the work of God will be accomplished. And what will that work be? But the cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself, will be put into place and all things will be held together by him. It will be the capstone and the capstone will be one of blessing and the capstone will be one of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he reminds us of this, number four, God will finish what he started. 
He sends the gospel by the Spirit of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ through the people of God into all the world for a greater glory. That's why Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion upon the day of Jesus Christ. That's not an if, that's not an and, a but, or a maybe. It is a done It is a done. And that's why we are awakened to God that he has completed this work, that he is carrying it out. He is sending forth the light of his truth even today by the spirit of God through the people of God to bring people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to the throne of God because there is a greater glory. And every day that we wake up and have breath and our feet hit the ground and we go about our day is a day that God ordains for greater glory until the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a day to tell the nations, God is good, Jesus loves you. Chapter 5, we see visions 6 and 7. There's a flying scroll that represents the judgment that God sends over sin and evil. The wicked will not go unpunished but will be consumed by their wickedness. And then the next uh, vision is a woman who is put into a basket. She represents wickedness and she is put into a basket and she is carried off by large birds. Carried away and it represents that the, the people and the punishment for their sin will be separated from them and there is a purifying of God's people for his purpose. You see, it tells us that God will deal with sin by removing it from the people to make them ready for himself. It's not for our comfort, it's not for our convenience, it's for our preparation to serve his mission. And listen, friends, those who are not separated from their sin will be destroyed by it as it dwells in them forever. Just like the wicked woman who is in the basket and is carried off. But when you trust God, he removes it from you forever. And the fifth reminder is that God purifies his people in preparation for sending them by separating them from their sin. This is the way God prepares us. He calls us out of our sin and into his glorious light. And friends, I'll tell you, this is why some who've been in or around the church are walking away from the church. They haven't tasted the goodness of God and found him to be lacking or wanting or insufficient. Deconstruction is little more in this day than a big flashy word for casting blame and holding on to our sin and wickedness. But that's not the main way most people are walking away today. No, most are just drifting. They're just drifting. They've raised the sails of life and are being blown by the winds of the world. Wherever it may carry them. Far more are forsaking God. They're not angry at him. They're not hurt by him. They're not cursing him and shaking their fist in his face. They're just being carried by wherever the winds blow. You see, friends, so often when we talk about sin, we think of gross, vile perversion. And surely there's plenty of that. But more often, sin that separates us from God is just a God-neglecting pleasure and busyness. 
or we just simply neglect him. Forget about him. Don't honor him in a way that he is worthy to be honored. And friends, understand this reminder tells us God will separate you from your sin or your sin will separate you from God. Chapter 6, the last vision we'll look at. Four chariots ride out from heaven through the earth. And whereas in the beginning four nations were seemingly at peace in their wickedness in the beginning, now these four horses have come and accomplished the work and God's spirit is now the one at rest in chapter 6. Joshua, the high priest, is the one who is now crowned and he will build the temple by obedience. He will be clothed with majesty and he will sit and rule on God's throne. God's presence, God's power, and God's purpose are now being made known to all. And friends, in the gospel, God conquers sin through Jesus. It's finished, now being proclaimed. And he invites each of us to believe it and to receive Jesus Reminder number six that we have here is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be exalted and he will rule his kingdom in everlasting peace. You see, friends, these reminders turn our eyes off the world and they call us to open our hearts to hear and to believe God's redemption in Jesus Christ and to obey him, to follow him. It is the word of God that awakens us when we believe and receive that word and, and, and regard it with the honor and the authority and the glory with which the one who sent it is worthy. You want to know what greater glory God has for your life? Let me lay it out for you. He awakens us that he might bring to us a heightened sense of his presence for deeper intimacy, a greater reality of God abiding within us. There is a a greater measure of his power that builds our faith. There is a deeper connection with his people that encourages us. We draw strength from one another, not because we've just found some people that actually produce it, but we found a people who've surrendered their lives to let God channel it through them. We find a deeper understanding of God's purpose for our life, a deeper stability, even when the storms are raging. Two words, consider your ways, return to me, and I will return to you. God speaks his word to awaken our hearts for his greater glory in life. Are you hearing God's word today? Is your heart being awakened in such a way? That it's receiving what God wants to say to you today. Let's pray.